today on Against the Grain, what happened to enslaved people in the U.S. following emancipation? In what ways were they asked or required to perform citizenship, and what did that entail? I'm CS. We'll represent a conversation with Priya Kandaswamy about the racial and gendered dimensions of policies directed at the formerly enslaved, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Millions of people were finally free. Slavery had just been abolished in the U.S., and formerly enslaved people could theoretically do whatever they wanted. Of course, the word theoretically is key. Newly free people lacked resources, education, connections, and other things that would have helped them pursue their dreams and become self-sufficient. The federal government was naturally aware of this. Its efforts to assist or manage freed people were crystallized in the Freedmen's Bureau, established by Congress in 1865. The Bureau's full name was the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. If, as Priya Kandaswamy asserts, much of the Freedmen's Bureau's agenda was directed at turning freed people into functioning citizens, How did the Bureau, and perhaps the white population as a whole, conceive of citizenship? Was it defined the same way for blacks as for whites? Did it have a gendered dimension? Were freed women expected to behave differently than formerly enslaved men? In her new book, Priya Kandaswamy describes, among other things, the Freedmen's Bureau's connections to vagrancy laws, labor contracts, and domestic work performed in white people's homes. Priya is a former Mills College professor and now academic program director at Mount Tamalpais College. The title of her book is Domestic Contradictions, Race and Gendered Citizenship from Reconstruction to Welfare Reform. When Priya Kandaswamy and I connected recently, I asked her what the Freedmen's Bureau's stated mission was. So its stated mission was to ensure a smooth transition after the Civil War in terms of uh, managing the refugee population, moving um, freed people into institutions of citizenship, um, and then also questions of kind of land management, institution building, those kinds of things in the South after the Civil War. So I imagine that it was born out of, this agency was born out of a, a concern that we have millions of formerly enslaved people suddenly being free. And can you, can you talk about uh, some of the concerns arising in government quarters about how to handle or, as you said, manage this population? Sure. I mean, the Freedmen's Bureau was a very controversial organization um, in a lot of different ways. So, like, on the one hand, um, there were a whole group of people who really opposed even having a Freedmen's Bureau, and that's really what ultimately led to the fact that the Bureau itself was very short-lived. And those objections were largely on the basis that what the Bureau was doing was redistributing resources in ways that essentially right, white citizens were being forced to subsidize you know, newly freed people. Right. So a lot of the objections to the Freedmen's Bureau were on that ground. But at the same time, people who were within the Bureau, who supported the Bureau, who advocated for the formation of the Bureau and its policies, their approach was really to say that the job of the Freedmen's Bureau was to transition newly emancipated people into the institutions of citizenship. And so like when you think about like all of these people who had suddenly become free to white Americans, right? This was something that felt like very threatening, right? Like what would citizenship mean if all of a sudden all of these people who had been enslaved could now vote, were regarded as citizens, could become, were not controlled essentially by the institutions of slavery. And so people within the Bureau really saw 
to use the Bureau as a way of proving that Black people could take on the responsibilities of citizenship. And so they focus their efforts on trying to inculcate those responsibilities. And in the book, right, the ways that I, I think about those responsibilities are primarily in relationship to responsibility as embedded in the idea of family and responsibility as embedded in the idea of work, right? And so we might think about the Freedmen's Bureau as kind of charged with reestablishing order, right, in the face of what to um, kind of white Americans felt like the disorder of emancipation. And if we were to think about that from the perspective of freed people, we might also say that the Freedmen's Bureau was involved in a project of taking emancipation, which could have meant many things, right? That freedom could have been all kinds of things, right? That freed people had their own imaginations of what freedom might look like. And part of what the Bureau did was narrow those, constrain them, channel them, normalize them, so that they were putting forward a definition of freedom that aligned with dominant structures of power. You indicate that the Freedmen's Bureau extended state vagrancy laws to apply to freed people, to the formerly enslaved. Uh, before we talk about why the Bureau did that, what did vagrancy laws typically regulate in the way of people's conduct? Who was considered a vagrant? So vagrancy as a category, I think, is really interesting because it has this very like nebulous and sort of free-floating definition. So vagrancy, right, when people are charged with vagrancy, you could be charged with vagrancy because you're loitering on a street. You could be charged with vagrancy um, because you weren't working. You could be charged with vagrancy generally just because you kind of look out of place or look like trouble, right, in some ways. And I mean, that kind of continues into the present day when we think about present day vagrancy laws. Vagrancy was something that was criminalized, but also not necessarily clearly defined. And so it became a mechanism of really criminalizing people for just being in public space when authorities felt like they shouldn't be. So when we think about vagrancy laws, particularly in this time period, right, in the period of Reconstruction, vagrancy laws get kind of amplified or they get used much more often during the Reconstruction era and they get used in ways that are designed to essentially put freed people back to work or to control freed people's mobility, to control freed people's kind of ability to be independent of um, white institutions or white employers. And so you see people being arrested for vagrancy um, if they don't have labor contracts, right? So if they are not employed, particularly if they're not employed by a white employer, one could be arrested for vagrancy. Um, you see people being arrested for vagrancy if they're trying to move around, right? So if they decide, well, I don't actually want to continue, you know, in this kind of agricultural work, I actually, you know, for me, freedom is I want to go look for my family. I want to move around and try to find people or I want to find a life, right, that is outside of plantation labor, right? Like one could be charged with vagrancy in that instance. Um, the book primarily tries to think about vagrancy laws in relation to how they were applied to women, because I think much of the scholarship about vagrancy has been about how vagrancy laws have been applied to men in this time period, and particularly the ways in which those laws became used in relation to freedmen to essentially um, put them back to work in slavery-like conditions. When applied to men, right, the emphasis, right, with thinking about vagrancy, vagrancy was often sort of understood as a kind of improper dependency, right, like that one wasn't working, that one wasn't financially independent, that also one didn't sort of have the independence of character, one wasn't the head of an independent household, one wasn't settled, all of these things became markers of vagrancy. Um, when applied to women, I think what vagrancy was, right, was more complicated because norms of gendered citizenship during that time period 
prescribed that women weren't supposed to be independent anyway, right? That, you know, the sort of ideal of the female citizen was as a dependent of a man. And so ideas of vagrancy that, you know, were used on men didn't really fit or um, function differently in relation to women. And so in relation to women, you really see two key figures of vagrancy emerging during this time period. Um, one is the idea, right, of policing vagrancy in public, which was usually framed through the rubric of policing prostitution or policing sex workers, um, that really any freed woman in public was subject to um, being seen as a sex worker by white authorities and being subject to vagrancy laws in that context. Um, and then I think the second way that it gets employed is what I think of as policing vagrancy in the private sphere, right? That in a very contradictory way, freed women who kind of tried to withdraw their labor and redirect it towards labor done on behalf of their own families were often seen as vagrant as well, right? And so, you know, the book talks about how the housewife, right, on the one hand, while that was held up as an ideal of gendered citizenship, for white women, black women in this time period were often considered vagrant if they were housewives, right? Because they should have been, you know, according to authorities, out, you know, working in some other context. Priya Kandaswamy joins me on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. She's a scholar and educator who works at the intersection of ethnic studies, feminist studies, and queer studies. We're talking about her new book, Domestic Contradictions, Race and Gendered Citizenship from Reconstruction to Welfare Reform. Well, let's explore, let's dive deeper into this association of female vagrancy with prostitution. You write about the opportunities, the kind of independence that sex work could provide, could potentially provide to freed women who went into prostitution. Do you think that had some kind of impact on how authorities viewed the act of prostituting oneself and the desire to regulate or proscribe that behavior? Yes, absolutely. Like, I think when we think about the idea of, you know, policing prostitution or, you know, the way that the figure of the prostitute gets employed in vagrancy laws, one of the things that's going on there is that um, sex work offered, right, a potential avenue of labor that cannot be easily controlled by a white employer, right? Like there was a sort of level of independence that women who may have engaged in sex work had that was very threatening, right, to a structure of labor in which like to work was also associated with a certain kind of um, subservience, right? Like that work needed to be controlled by white employers. Um, one of the ways I think about this, like um, Linda Kerber and her work about kind of citizenship and thinking about the ways that citizenship doesn't just entail rights, but also entails obligations, um, argues that, you know, in this time period, there was this idea that like people had or freed people had an obligation not just to work but to do work that was observable contractual and regular and i think if we think about sex work right like sex work is not really any of those things it's not something that's easily like observed or surveyed by white authorities it's not necessarily regular um, it might at some level be contractual, but during this time period, labor contracts are something that were formulated for long periods of time and um, designed to keep people um, kind of located in one place. Um, and sex work certainly wasn't like that. So what you're saying about the fact that even if a sex worker was exercising a certain kind of economic independence, it wasn't the kind of maybe independence that the federal authorities wanted. In fact, are you saying that in a sense, independence aside from certain kinds of ways of doing things, ways of working, was, was not what the Bureau saw as an important attribute of citizenship, at least on the part of these formerly enslaved folks? 
I think that independence during this time period, the way that it gets employed is a fundamentally contradictory idea. This idea that people should be self-sufficient, that they should be independent, um, particularly that households should be self-sufficient and independent, and that it was you know, a male head of the household's responsibility to provide for the rest of the family, not, um, not the state's responsibility or not the responsibility of people who had held slaves to repair the damage or violence done by slavery. Um, this idea of independence, it's fundamentally contradictory because it's held out as an expectation for freed people. And really it is this idea that like freed people could demonstrate their deservingness of freedom, um, their deservingness of citizenship by being independent. Um, but at the same time, the policies of the Freedmen's Bureau, of the federal government, of southern states, we're all working very concertedly to deny people economic independence, right? So independence in this context becomes a kind of moral or cultural character-based virtue that freed people are expected to perform without actually having access to kind of the economic foundation that might have enabled any kind of independence. And actually what I think you see is that when people do try to create an economic basis for independence, you know, outside of systems of employment that are dominated by kind of plantation interests, that those things get shut down very quickly, right? And so like in the example of sex work, right, someone's trying to be economically independent through sex work, they become criminalized. In the examples of people like moving around, trying to, right, live off land on their own, right, they also become criminalized. So people actually trying to create some sort of, you know, economic basis for their own independence are often being criminalized for vagrancy at the same time that there are these cultural ideals being put forward that people had to demonstrate their independence in order to be deserving of freedom. Yeah, and just to supplement what you were saying, uh, you indicate in your book that many freed people sought to define their own working conditions through self-employment, odd jobs, and seasonal work. And this is not what the Freedmen Bureau approved of. Uh, you also associated female vagrancy, or you pointed to an association of female vagrancy with housewives. And this is interesting because one would think that if the Freedmen's Bureau, if other government institutions who kind of wanted a certain kind of stability in the lives of freed people, they would want, you know, what they saw as a kind of a stable family where the woman is doing the traditional work of, of housewife. And so how could that and how was that seen as something that, that violated their sensibilities and violated the law of vagrancy. Yeah, I mean, I think that, right, that is really like one of the contradictions that, you know, is at the heart of what the book tries to explore, right? So this idea that on the one hand, gendered citizenship, as it has been sort of understood and theorized during this period, as well as during sort of other periods of the development of the welfare state in the United States, has been thought of as, right, like a state effort to cultivate the characteristics of motherhood, of caretaking, of being sort of a dependent within a household, as being a wife, right? Like all of these things are what female citizenship is supposed to look like. And then when we come to this instance of the Freedmen's Bureau, um, you know, many freed women sought to do that. They sought to claim it for themselves and saw that perhaps as like, an avenue or a tool to withdraw their labor from the plantation economy. And when they did that, you know, because black women's labor was so essential to the southern economy, and because, right, the idea that black women should be working was so fundamental to the institution of slavery, right, that when they did that, they were seen as doing something wrong, right? They were seen as in violation of the law. They were seen as lazy. They were seen as vagrant. 
um, and as a problem that the Bureau needed to solve. And so what you see is that like when, or kind of the contradiction is that when Black women take on those norms of gendered citizenship or try to use them as a vehicle to direct their labor towards their own families and communities, the Freedmen's Bureau comes in and suggests that actually that's not what you're supposed to be doing. What you're supposed to be doing is working outside the home. And so that's kind of what I mean when I say that like culturally a particular idea of the family is being put forward and at the same time that idea of the family is consistently being undermined to create this kind of impossible situation. Or, you know, I almost think of it, it's like a setup, right? Like that, you know, on the one hand, you're supposed to prove that you're deserving of citizenship. And on the other hand, um, the state is undermining any way that you might actually be able to do that. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Priya Kandaswamy joins me. She is Academic Program Director at Mount Tamil Pius College. She is former professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Mills College, and she is author of Domestic Contradictions, Race and Gendered Citizenship from Reconstruction to Welfare Reform. So you were saying that for the Freedmen's Bureau, and and no doubt for other arms of government, and perhaps no doubt for mainstream white society, work, wage labor was essential Uh, This was something that needed to, in a sense, be imposed on freed people, formerly enslaved people, including women. So the labor contract, the actual formal long-term labor contract, this was something the Bureau, according to your book, actually encouraged and certified and to some degree mandated what was what were these labor contracts and what kind of labor were they aimed at? The labor contract was a really important part of what the Freedmen's Bureau did. And I think this is because by you know kind of enforcing a structure of labor contracts, the Bureau also participated in or put forward a conception of freedom that was grounded in the idea of contract. And so if we think about what does it mean to be a free individual or what does it mean to become a freed person, that could have meant many different things. In the Bureau's estimation, it came to mean having the capacity to participate in contracts. And so the distinction that kind of gets made is that you know under slavery people weren't able to consent right they couldn't participate in contract when one was enslaved um that now that people were free the transition that is happening is that people are able to engage in contract and so the difference between enslaved labor and free labor was that free labor was governed by contract and contracts were something that you you know, freely entered into. So there are a lot of problems with that conception of freedom. So first of all, right, like freedom might not actually be being able to participate in contracts, but even the contract system was um, not one that people freely entered into by any means, right? It was actually a very coercive system. So uh, the Freedmen's Bureau required in some places that people sign labor contracts. They adopted um, some very coercive measures to make sure that all freed people entered into labor contracts. Labor contracts during this time period for freed people were not kind of like how we sort of maybe think about a, a labor contract today, right? Like they extended for long periods of time. So usually an agricultural labor contract extended for a full year and one would not get paid, right, because you didn't fulfill your contract if you left before the completion of the entire year. Um, So they were very coercive. They were clearly designed to keep people in one location to make sure that there was still, right, a low-wage agricultural workforce available to planters in the South. Um, The fact that the terms of contract were structured this way and that if one didn't follow the terms of those contracts, one could be arrested for vagrancy, I think really alludes to 
or sort of demonstrates the coercive nature of those contracts. So while the contract was kind of understood as, well, because you are now free, you get to enter into a contract, you really didn't have a choice to not enter into a contract. And you also didn't have much or any negotiating power about what the terms of that contract might be, right? The contracts that were issued during this time period, um, the vast majority of them are for agricultural labor. And so when you look at them, they are contracts for large, like one contract for large numbers of people who are agreeing to be agricultural laborers on a plantation for a particular year, you know, in exchange for a certain amount of compensation. But also, you know, and I think this is much less studied in the history of Reconstruction, the Freedmen's Bureau also write certified labor contracts for domestic workers. Um, and those domestic workers contracts were much different, right? Like they were much more personal. They sort of stipulated a lot more conditions. You really, um, I think from them, or from looking at them, you see much more how contracts played out or sort of what was being kind of navigated and negotiated interpersonally in contracts, particularly in relation to women workers in the home. One would hope and expect that the domestic labor contracts that were certified by the Freedmen's Bureau that freed women entered into uh, spelled out conditions of work dramatically different than work conditions under slavery. Was that in fact the case? That was not the case. I mean, in many ways, that was like very literally not the case. So like reading through domestic workers contracts, um, some of the language that struck me was kind of the repeated use of phrases like, you know, will provide service as in times past, or will conduct herself as she did when she was a slave, right? Like, so the contracts themselves are very explicit about the fact that the expectation for the worker is that she go back to doing the kind of work that enslaved people were expected to do or that you know the conditions of work were not really changing but rather the thing that for the employer marked it different than before emancipation was simply that now it was contractual but there was no sort of obligation in the contract to transform working conditions, to transform kind of expectations of work, to rethink power relationships, um, that none of that is really happening. And so like what you see in domestic workers contracts, like one tremendous ambiguity about like what the work actually is, right? Like a lot of the contracts just say things like, that are essentially like, we'll do whatever I, I tell you to do, right? Like they're not, there are no like specified hours. There's no sense of like, I'm responsible for this kind of labor. It's just kind of a blanket contract that says we'll do whatever she's told, right? That the domestic workers contracts also have really um, extensive stipulations about behavior, right? So like when we think about work um, and a labor contract, often you would think, well, the labor contract is going to be about the terms of work. But like, actually, a lot of the labor contracts are about terms of behavior, like how someone should talk, how someone should be deferent, how someone should be obedient, right? Like that those things are all being written into um, labor contracts. So there's a sense of that the contract is really trying to guarantee a certain kind of subservience in the worker. And then I also think labor contracts were often, you know, people were coerced into entering into them. And then also because workers, you know, domestic workers were almost always, right, women or children, that oftentimes the worker themselves is not even signing the contract, right? Like you have, um, you know, a husband or a father or another parent who is the one who is actually signing on to the contract, which sort of even takes away this idea that the worker herself is consenting in some way, because in fact, right, in many cases, it was someone else consenting for her. What did it mean to Bureau? Again, we're talking about the Freedmen's Bureau established in 1865. What did it mean to Bureau officials that these domestic workers, these black domestic workers, were doing housework um, so-called reproductive labor in the service of white families 
rather than their own. I mean, I think that this is really the way that domestic labor or the domestic worker resolves kind of some of the contradictions I talked about earlier of an ideal of gendered citizenship grounded in women doing reproductive labor, but also um, an anxiety about Black women withdrawing their labor from the labor force and directing it towards right, their own families and communities. I think what emerges in this time period is this idea that the domestic worker can combine, right, like a cultural emphasis on these gendered forms of labor and the things we associate with them, like, like caretaking, nurturing, doing work within a household, um, but link that to service for white families rather than thinking about that as something that could be done for one's own family. One of the things the book is trying to document is the ways that while we often think about, you know, the ideal of uh, feminized citizenship as being motherhood during this time period, that in fact there are two ideals, right? Like one that is being held up for white women and one that's being, you know, forced upon black women and that the ideal, right, that's really being forced upon black women is a figure of the domestic worker because she kind of combines, right, this idea that yes, women should be doing these forms of gendered labor, but she should be doing them, right, in the service um, of white families, not in the service of black families. That's the voice of Priya Kandaswamy, scholar and educator, former professor at Mills College. Before that, she taught at Portland State University. She is now academic program director at Mount Tamalpais College. And Duke University Press just published her new book, Domestic Contradictions, Race and Gendered Citizenship from Reconstruction to Welfare Reform. We've got a link to Priya and to her new book on our website, againsttothegrain.org. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. There were a lot of people, a lot of freed people, immediately after emancipation who ended up in D.C. The Bureau had certain concerns about the numbers of people congregating in the District of Columbia. And a one effort that they initiated in response to this, I think, was they helped set up industrial schools for freed women in the D.C. area. Who ran these schools and what were the freed women who attended taught and for what purposes? Some of the schools were run directly by the Bureau and some of the schools were run um, kind of in association by the Bureau, um, by white reformers, usually white women reformers who sort of saw it as their mission, right, to educate and uplift freed women. I mean, we can think about like, you know, all the different ways that schooling has been a major like reform project, particularly like thinking about, for example, like Native American boarding schools or thinking about like efforts to kind of like reform and instill dominant cultural values through schooling. So, I mean, industrial schools were certainly a project like that, right? Like they were about assimilation, they were about reform, they were um, trying to um, instill kind of the values of like hard work into freed people. And so, right, the industrial schools, particularly industrial schools for women, um, focused on you know, what we might think about today as reproductive labor or service work, um, things like doing laundry, sewing, um, domestic labor, right, like cleaning, childcare, things like that, right, like so teaching women, um, teaching freed women how to engage in those kinds of activities was, was a little like, I mean, I would imagine that most freed women probably knew how to do those things. So we also think about the school is really actually kind of about the discipline of schooling, not necessarily about any kind of education. Um, and then also, right, using right those skills as a basis for um, employing freed women in various different places. There was a placement element to these schools. These schools tried to find 
people who would employ these domestic workers being trained at these schools. Talk about that process, how it worked, and you write that it was difficult at times to find placements that would accommodate women with small children, that would accommodate women who would otherwise bring their children with them to the employer's house. So what were freed women encouraged to do in that case? So when we think about um, placing freed women into domestic labor, or I would probably even say like forcing freed women into domestic labor, um, it was really kind of this conjunction of there being a large population of freed people in D.C., the Freedmen's Bureau, trying to figure out like, I guess, like what to do with people, right? And I think part of that what to do with people question is also about like, how do we not give people public assistance? So um, all of this is happening in the context of, of a sort of discourse in which to provide people with public assistance is to foster laziness, is contrary to the values of free citizenship, because if one is a free person, one works and, you know, enters into labor contracts and takes care of themselves. And so like public assistance would be kind of antithetical to that. Um, and so in this context, um, one of the ways that the Bureau kind of sought to, I guess, resolve the, the problem of having so many freed people in D.C. was to try to place them as domestic workers in northern cities. And that was that process was often facilitated by people in the north. Right. You know, sending in ads for domestic workers and the Bureau. Right paying for transportation for freed women to go to a particular place and work as a domestic worker. And, you know, and when I say that, I think that that sounds more voluntary than it really was, right? So like women were put in a position of, you know, if you can't prove that you're self-sufficient, your children will be taken from you and put in an orphanage. You know, in the case of um, women with small children who were being pushed into domestic labor, Frequently, what would happen is that women were expected to leave their children or were told to leave their children and to go right and labor in a household. And right, this idea that like, well, if children were, you know, held in orphanages or held in other institutions, then freed women would be more employable. And I think that, you know, when we think about like, right, like one of the greatest violences of slavery was family separation. And now stepping back, you juxtapose in this book the Freedmen Bureau's activities and stances with what the activists, the maternalist activists of the progressive era, this is kind of uh, 1890 or so to 1920 or so, what those activists did when they advocated for a family wage and state support of single mothers. What's your argument here? This is really one of... I guess the primary interventions or additions that the book seeks to make. So when we think about feminist histories of the welfare state, they almost always start in the progressive era and they almost always highlight in one way or another how gendered ideas of um, the heteropatriarchal family get employed to develop a welfare state that essentially treats men and women very differently, right? That treats men as kind of, you know, independent citizens and treats women as dependent mothers. Um, you know, and those histories, they really highlight how the language of family becomes a mechanism for people making claims on the state, right? Making claims for social programs, for employment, for family wage, um, you know, for access to home ownership, for all kinds of things, right? Through the language of it would be good for families. Um, so in that context, right, the family becomes, you know, almost a basis for claims to rights. And, you know, those claims then also reproduce, right, all of the hierarchies that are inherent in the heteropatriarchal family. Um, I think that what turning to the Freedmen's Bureau does is highlight that actually in this particular instance, 
that the family was not used, right? The heteropatriarchal family was something that was very much, right, like enforced, and it was a prominent feature of the discourse about citizenship in relation to freed people, but was not the basis of a claim to rights. It actually became the basis of a claim to obligations, right? So the heteropatriarchal family became the reason why, you know, people had to work. It became the reason why black people had to be responsible for their own well-being, why black people had to be, or sort of how black people could demonstrate their deservingness. But it did not come with, right, all of the kinds of material resources that the white working class was able to secure through the rubric of the family with, you know, the progressive era and then the New Deal. Um, and so part of what I think turning to a different historical moment shows us is that that story about the family is a really particular one, you know, and I'm not, I don't think it's wrong, right? Like, I think that history, you know, it is accurate, but it is a very, like, particular history of the welfare state in relation to white families. And if we start to want to tell the history of the welfare state, we also have to think about a much longer history of the welfare state in relation to black families. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song, where we are talking with Priya Kandaswamy about her new book, Domestic Contradictions, Race and Gendered Citizenship from Reconstruction to Welfare Reform. Right, this sort of double standard applied to uh, white people, white women, white wives, versus uh, black folks, formerly enslaved people, freed women, is really a, a theme of your book. And, and I think one way it comes out is this notion, going back to the way in which vagrancy laws regulated, among other things, idleness, that, that the meaning of idleness varied across different populations between white and black and male and female. Um, how so? Like, how how would you define the contours of this uh, way in which uh, black lives were viewed and treated very differently than white lives? I mean, I think starting with the concept of idleness, you know, idleness is something that is really only applied to certain people, right? So on the one hand, we think about the meaning of idleness as like not working, but actually we don't consider, for example, the independently wealthy are not considered idle because they don't work for a living they're considered wealthy, right? Like that that's a different standard. Similarly, um, in relation to women, um, like white women were not considered idle when they stayed within the home and didn't work outside, you know, when they didn't work outside the home. And obviously they shouldn't be considered idle because, right, there's a lot of labor that is unpaid that is happening in the home that they're engaging in. Um, but the contrast is that like when black women were engaged in that labor for their own families, they were considered idle. And so I think that there's, um, you know, there is an argument about like what is, and I, I like the way that you sort of think about like what are the value of black lives versus the value of white lives. You know, I think part of the message that's being put forward or the structure that's being constructed is that, you know, the value of black life is always being defined in relation to service toward white people. For example, in the context of domestic workers, the domestic worker's value is defined in relation to what she does for the white family. And not just like what she does in terms of the labor that she performs, but also what she does in terms of reinforcing a structure of white supremacy, right? That, you know, um, her role is to be kind of this subordinated, marginalized, always accessible, frequently erased part of the white family. And that's kind of defining, or that's how the state is defining her value. Whereas, you know, I mean, I, I think another place that's really striking is like when we think about like, how motherhood is understood. So in relation to kind of, you know, maternalist activism and gendered constructions of motherhood, you know, in that context, right, women were seen as good citizens when they were caring for children. And like that was rooted in this idea that like children were like the future of the nation, that the value of white children's 
um, was very, very high, right? That white children represented the future of citizenry. And, you know, in, you know, in a lot of the examples I talk about in the book, I mean, I think one of the things you, you really see is the devaluation of the lives of black children, right? That like, it was not important that, you know, a free woman be able to invest emotional energy, care, labor into her own child, right? Because those children were regarded as not the future of the nation, but rather as a future labor force. And they weren't seen as sort of worthy of, of investment and of, of care, of, you know, of love, of, you know, familial support. And that, you know, really that those lives weren't um, considered valuable in any way. I mean, I think when you, we think about like the Freedmen's Bureau and then also, you know, in the comparison the book makes to workfare, what those policies are really saying is that, you know, black children and in the, you know, in the more contemporary era, kind of a wider range of working class children, what those children really need is a model of labor discipline in their parents. They don't need care. They don't need time. They don't need stability. They don't need, um, you know, all the things we might associate with good parenting. What they need is consistent models of people working really hard at low wages without very many rights. You note in your book, Domestic Contradictions, by my guest Priya Kandaswamy, that one of the contributions of this project is to locate welfare politics within the realm of queer politics. How do you see your book and its conception of the history of the Freedmen's Bureau as contributing to queer studies? In many ways, like when I think about kind of the intellectual inspiration for this project, it stems, um, I mean, it stems from many places, but one of the primary places it stems from is an essay by Kathy Cohen um, called Punks, Bulldaggers, and Welfare Queens, in which she kind of makes this intervention in queer studies that seeks to complicate a dichotomy between straightness and queerness as identities and instead think about heteronormativity as a structure of power. You know, this book kind of pursues that conception of queerness, um, as has much other scholarship. Um, and so, you know, while it's not really about lesbian and gay identities, and it's not necessarily kind of engaging with the stories of people who would necessarily see themselves as queer, a lot of the project is about challenging the ways that heterosexuality gets naturalized through state policies and how that naturalization is not just about the marginalization of like people who we would think of today as gay and lesbian, but also marginalization of many other groups, you know, and I think um, part of Cohen's point in her essay and, and part of my point in the book is to say that heteronormativity is actually a structure of racial power. I also think we could say that heteronormativity is a structure of settler colonialism. Um, heteronormativity is a structure of a certain kind of capitalism as well. And so that like queer politics, you know, that seeks to denaturalize heteronormativity is also necessarily, right, engaged in denaturalizing all of those kinds of things. So for example, when we think about welfare politics and like the idea of the welfare queen, right, as kind of this non-normative figure who has to be contained by more austere welfare policy, we could certainly think about the welfare queen as a queer figure, or we could think about the vagrant, right, as a queer figure in the sense that they are um, challenging the naturalization of heteronormativity. So like when I talk about vagrancy in the book, I think one of the things that's important about vagrancy that I maybe haven't said yet is that vagrancy was really threatening and needed to be policed because it offered um, a vision of a different way of living, right? Like the vagrant was the person who, you know, didn't get up and go to work every day, didn't just live in one place, didn't adhere to kind of normative sexualities, but actually sort of signaled a potential for living another way. And so um, in my mind, the vagrant is a queer figure because the vagrant points to the fact that all of the things that are being said about, you know, who a citizen should be or what it means to, in this case, even be right, a free person 
Um, the vagrant is pointing to the fact that actually that's not true, right? Like there are all these other ways one could be. And in doing that is denaturalizing something that is taken for granted as true. I think one of the ways that like I hope the book contributes to queer studies or to queer politics is also to show how you know, queer studies has been really like rigorous, I think, about showing how the heteropatriarchal family has been naturalized. And I think this book really tries to show how that naturalization is also linked to the naturalization of state power, right? So like all of the things that are going on to sort of naturalize and normalize a particular family form, particular ways of doing gender, particular hierarchical relationships, particular forms of sexuality, are also very much linked to the naturalization of the state, right, um, as a way of organizing power. And so by denaturalizing the family, which is, you know, or by denaturalizing heteropatriarchy, which is, I think, part of the project of queer studies, um, that queer studies is also about denaturalizing state power. Priya Kandaswamy, K-A-N-D-A-S-W-A-M-Y, scholar, educator who works at the intersection of ethnic studies, feminist studies, and queer studies, academic program director at Mount Tamalpais College, which provides an associate of arts degree program and college preparatory program free of charge to people incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison. Mount Tamalpais College was formerly called the Prison University Project. And she is author of the book we've been discussing today. And we've really only touched the surface of this book um, discussed one section of it in depth. You may well want to find out what else is in this very interesting book. It's called Domestic Contradictions, Race and Gendered Citizenship from Reconstruction to Welfare Reform, published by Duke University Press. Apriya, thanks so much for writing this book and for joining us today. Thank you. It was really great to be here and to get to talk to you. And that program first aired last September 7th. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.